matchmaker. Welcome to Subtitles, where we spike the canon in music and movies. In each episode, we will offer up replacements for each title in the top 100 of a well-known, well-regarded ranking, and we'll walk away with a pair of subtitles which we think deserve more acclaim and to which attention must be paid. I'm Tim. I'm replacing the entries on the 2007 AFI 100 Years 100 Movies list, starting with number 100 and working up. And I'm Matt. I'm replacing the top 100 entries on Spin Magazine's 2015 list of the top 300 albums from 1985 until 2015, starting with number one and working down. Here's how this works. The two of us have gone through each list, decided on a theme of the original entry, and have come up with a pair of potential replacement titles which share that theme. We'll talk about that original entry. Sometimes we'll regret that we have to get rid of it. Sometimes we'll rejoice in being able to drop it, but this podcast is not just another dissection of an outmoded list. In part one of this episode, Matt had two new albums to talk through, and I made my choice for the subtitles album list. Now in part two, I have two new movies to discuss, and Matt will decide which of them deserves a place on the subtitle movie list. Sometimes I'll have listened to the album, sometimes he'll have seen the movies, but at the end of the day, what matters is how well we've sold the titles. And at the end of some of those days, one of us will want to bop the other for that choice. Once we have finished these lists off, we'll do some fun activities with these new lists we've collaborated on. But before we can get there, we have to do this. Today's title to be replaced is Oliver Stone's Platoon from 1986, uh, which also won Best Picture for that year. This is a movie I have always had kind of a hard time with. So I've, I'd seen it twice, and I'd even seen it fairly recently. Um, when I was going through all of those Best Picture winners for the blog a couple summers ago, I rewatched it. Still didn't feel like I had a great handle on it. Um, and I'm really glad that I decided to watch it again a third time, which is, I mean, it's not like a crazy amount of times to watch a movie or something, but like, I'm glad that I went back and watched it again because this was the first time I really felt like I could like grip the thing properly. Like it was a little slick the first couple of times out, um, it's a movie which, I don't know, it's an Oliver Stone movie, so there are lots of things about it that I really I really admire and think it does well, and, and from a filmmaking perspective, I think are pretty impressive, and there are things about it that I don't understand what the rationale was, and things that I just flat out don't agree with, and stuff that just seems wrong. Uh, I guess we can start with the latter. Um... It's, it's kind of, just from a, from a premise uh, standpoint, it is almost banal in the amount of, like, good versus evil, sane versus brutal, you know, kind of characterization it sets up. It's like, I don't know, a little bit of subtlety would have been nice, but again, Oliver Stone. Like, a but like, it's a movie that, if you're gonna do that... I do feel like it needs a softer touch because what we get instead is you have Elias played by Willem Dafoe uh, who is playing this basically decent guy in Vietnam, this basically decent soldier in Vietnam. And his opposite number is Barnes who is played by Tom Berenger. And for as much sanity and decency as Elias projects, Barnes projects this, you know, and 
insane and, and like, almost death cultist, you know, approach to the war. And both of them are good soldiers. Like, that's the thing about it, is that both of them are, like, good at their jobs. We see them very effectively killing people uh, and moving and motivating men much better than the actual commanding officer of the platoon does, uh, Lieutenant Wolf, played by Mark Moses, who... I've always seen that guy get the short end of the stick, but it's it's strong in this movie. Anyway, um, the two of them are, are good at a lot of things that you would expect soldiers to be good at, but it's also so flat out, like, which one we're supposed to pull for, which one is the good one, quote-unquote. Like, it... That, that aspect of it, I think as a younger person, like I saw this for the first time in college, and as a younger person, I, I found that setup more appealing. And now I'm sort of, I don't know, jaded is not even the right word. It just, I don't think it's that impressive. I don't think it's that interesting a perspective to pull from, especially not for the Vietnam War. Um, because to me, the great... Vietnam War moment in the movies, at any rate, is that scene from Apocalypse Now where the where the boat is passing into like Cambodia. Like it's pat like it's really, you know, it's it's far upriver. Um and there's this firefight going on. There is no sense of who's in control. And at one point Martin Sheen goes to one guy who's like just firing a machine gun into the darkness and is like, who's in command here? And the guy says, Ain't you? And then turns around and starts firing again. And to me, that is, like, the most perfect expression of the Vietnam War ever put into film. And there's nothing quite like that here. There's a, there's a, there's rationale here. There's something structural here. And the problem... Here's the thing about this movie, which I find so fascinating and so dumb. The, the thing about this movie is that it doesn't question whether or not the Vietnam War was right or wrong. It doesn't go into a serious critique of whether or not this was something people should have been doing or not in the late 60s. It basically looks at the Vietnamese as the enemy. It never presents them as human beings. And it is entirely about, oh my god, what has this war done to the heron volk of America? And that's, I mean, a lot of Vietnam movies do that. You could argue that Apocalypse Now does that. I think one could, I don't know. The Deer Hunter is that movie for a lot of people, and just happens to do it better than Platoon does it. Uh, you could argue that Full Metal Jacket does it. Like, there's a lot of there's a lot of that in the Vietnam movie like genre. Um, this one I find is is very much wrapped up in that. This one is very very much about there are these people we're fighting. We should be fighting them, but we're fighting each other instead. And it's kind of obnoxious watching that play out. Um, especially when even the good guys are using... The good guys are, are using racial slurs left and right. Like, Elias says all sorts of interesting ethnic slurs about the Vietnamese. I think he probably has as many come out of his mouth as Barnes does. Now, does Elias sit there with a gun to the head of a Vietnamese child while he, like tells her father to, like, give up the NVA stuff that he's so sure is in this village. No, I am not a liberal. I do not think that, like, using an ethnic slur is as bad as putting a gun to someone's head and threatening it like a child. But I think it is suggestive of where the movie's 
ideas are. The movie is is just very much concerned about this is what Americans suffered, and in part what Oliver Stone suffered, because Oliver Stone is basically Charlie Sheen in this movie. Uh, Chris Taylor is the main character. He's new to Vietnam. Uh, he comes because he volunteered. He was in college. He chose uh, to drop out of college and, and go to war, which is basically what Oliver Stone did. Oliver Stone, of course, comes from a pretty privileged background and, and did more or less the same thing. Um, he is, in fact, the first veteran and, as far as I know, the only veteran. Um, not the only veteran, like, all over. But, like, I think he might be the only person to win Best Director who was also a Vietnam War vet. Uh, there are other, like, vets who have, like, won an Oscar one way or another. But that's, like, that's where this movie sort of comes from. That's its perspective. I don't know. Have you seen this one? I feel like this is I feel like this is like kind of dropped down the Vietnam War movie power rankings. Like as much as it was definitely like a like a shellacking moment when it came out in the 80s winning best picture, all of that stuff, I really do feel like it's fourth in the pecking order, uh even behind something like Full Metal Jacket, which people don't even think about as a Vietnam movie so much as like a Paris Island movie. Anyway, is this one you you like have like watched before? I have, yeah. I've only seen it once, and it was a long time ago, but I remember when it was still higher in the pecking order, or at least it was in the general, in the way that I was seeing movies anyway, um, like around those people. Um, I like. I don't know why I always think about the Alice in Chains songs Rooster with Platoon. They're not contemporaneous. I don't know why. So, like, Rooster is a song about the Vietnam War and about Jerry Cantrell's father's experience. I don't know why I associate the two the two together. Um, so that, as an aside, just like there is a way in which a lot of the Vietnam texts kind of run together for me, um, and there is kind of a far remove from most of them for me, except for Apocalypse Now, which is the only one I ever feel any compulsion to return to at points. Um, so yes, I have seen it. Um, it's a little murky up there. I, I I always remember how fascinated I am by how many like good actors are in this, mm -hmm. and like how mm -hmm. many people are just in it. Um, like that always stands out to me, and that that right that's not what you want your more your war movie to do. Like that's <laughs> kind of one of the first things that jumps out at me. I mean, I think you're right, and I think. It, you know, the adage that there is no such thing as an anti-war movie. I, I, this is not my reading of the film at all. Um, but I think the only way it could really work is if you read it as, we are supposed to see Taylor as bad. And like that gets driven home in the moment where he, where he kills Barnes. I don't think that's what the movie's up to. I don't think that that's what Stone is trying to do, but right, that's the only way I think you can turn this movie into not a look at what it's doing to our boys thing and and just still not considering the Vietnamese and all of this. That yeah, the war was a bad thing, but we're looking at it in all the wrong ways still. So, the the, the long answer for yes, I have seen it, but it's been a minute, but I think the harder thing for me now is just separating Oliver Stone from everything and saying that, like, I can appreciate the merits of this movie, but 
Like, he just kind of has a cult of personality now that it's like, I can't think of the movies before I think of him, really. And that's kind of a problem. This movie, I'm glad you said the anti-war thing. This movie's best parts are the war scenes. Like, emphatically speaking, the three best sequences in here. Number one, the one where where Barnes does have the, the gun to the girl's head um, and is pressuring her dad and all of these other soldiers are standing around and watching. Because Oliver Stone, like, again, it's sort of a scattershot thing, but, like, when he's right about something, he usually comes across pretty potently. Um, I mean, the problem is that when he's wrong about stuff, he comes across pretty potently, too. But, like, when it hits, it hits. And the message here is not about, you know, soldiery or, like, even the insanity aspect. It's about how if somebody has strong enough force of will, then even decent people will be, you know, sort of coward, uh, cowardly and, and mum in that moment. Like, you watch multiple shots of Chris sort of, like, opening his mouth and nothing coming out. Like, as that's happening, everyone else, including his commanding officer, is just, is just kind of there. And the only way that someone can stop Barnes from doing yet another crazy thing is to literally punch him in the face, which is what Elias does when he shows up and sees what's happening. There is, there is something about that which I find compelling. There is definitely good work being done on that, like, idea that it does require strength to fight strength. And whether or not that strength is punching someone in the face or doing something else, like, you know, you can quibble about that, but in the moment, it's hard to say that the punching in the face is the wrong answer. Uh, the second scene that I think is so well done is the one that I'm going to spend a lot of time talking about, but it's the one where Elias dies. We will get back to it. And then the third one that I think is really well done is that extended firefight at the end, the one that's basically the Tet Offensive. I think that's a very well-made scene. I think the first time out, as I watched it, it was incredibly confusing, and that, I think, is the point, is that it should be incredibly confusing. And as I've watched it more, I have come to appreciate that there is a definite underlying structure to it. Like, there's a lot of sturm and drang in the in the actual like filmmaking aspect a lot of flashing lights a lot of explosions a lot of blood a lot of characters there's a lot going on but then you also see the structural aspect of that uh person in charge of it the colonel who calls in the airstrike i mean that's a that's a very true war moment in any war movie i look for is there a moment where they kill off someone for the good of an objective, where they, like, essentially kill off someone on their own side for the good of an objective, and if it doesn't do that, it's hard to take it seriously. Platoon gets there. It takes a while to get there, but it gets there. Um, there, uh, again, it's hard to call it an anti-war film, though, if its best scenes are overwhelmingly in the combat itself, and that's right, something I struggle with. I mean, right, that's the whole point of the sentiment, too, or the, the theory that I generally ascribe to, because especially if you're talking movie, what makes those scenes compelling also makes them spectacle, so mm -hmm. that it's easier to remove oneself from them and understand it as entertainment rather than realism or some commentary. And it's not just movies, this is what Vonnegut troubles with in the intro to 
Slaughterhouse Five, that um, real or inventive that he has Mary Hare tell him, Mary O'Hare rather tell him that like you can't make war seem like one of the John Wayne movies. You can't make it something that young boys see and feel compelled to do or that feel like like there's some sort of greatness or machismo inherent to that that like that they want to be a part of um that you can't make it a spectacle and that's all tied up in even being able to tell it anyway um which i think like that's not the subject of this episode but just thinking about stone as as a veteran of vietnam war even being able to tell this and structured in this way and like sort of the trauma that's rife in that um and how that probably informs a lot of the the organization but again that's a different thing that i may have to write a paper on um but i don't know just thinking about that is like the action of war is the trauma and it's also the thing that you have to visualize and pretty much as soon as you do that it becomes uh, an object of spectacle that is controlled and that ceases to communicate the overwhelming horror of the thing, whether that's what's happening to individual American soldiers in this case, or the the Vietnamese that the film is largely ignoring, or, um, you know, whatever level that is at the the many damages it's, it's, it's doing um, that gets lost in all the best scenes are where all the action is. And that becomes a good thing. Um, so yeah, I, like that's sort of where this film exists for me. That like, I don't know. There are ways in which I see it that I'm like, well, it could be better if we read it like this. But it sort of ultimately does fall into that. Like, it is trying to show us that war is bad, but not in particularly nuanced ways. Um, and that bothers me. Yeah, it's a movie in which war is bad because it does bad things to one side, not because war is bad. Um, and, and I think that's that's kind of where the movie falls apart for me a little bit. Like, if he had, if, if he being Stone, if this movie were better in those sequences where people, like these soldiers are talking to each other, where they're hanging out, where they challenge one another, whatever, if it were better at that, then this movie would work better. But there aren't any good scenes where that happens. Like, it just breaks down further into the Elias Barnes thing. Or, like, the movie is is not just, like, racist towards Vietnamese people. It's, like, racist towards black people, too. Um, I was, I mean, this time around, I was really, really shocked by, like, how many of the bad people in this movie are black people. And, like, how many stereotypes that, like, honestly, you could have seen in Gone with the Wind are very much active here. Like, the movie's most evil character is Barnes, but there's such an ideological bent to him. Like, this whole, like, I am the god of death, what do you know about killing thing? That it's like, okay, well, that's that's a video game. Like, that's not even a real thing. Like, the most odious character is Junior, who is this black guy who is, like, not taking responsibility for anything constantly blames other people is doing like a like a genuine step and fetch it kind of character here like we just talked about public enemy and burn hollywood burn that's the same thing that they're talking about this is the same idea and this is only a couple years before that album as opposed to you know gone with the wind or or any number of 
those older movies. So, like, there's a lot here. There's a lot here that just really doesn't work. Is it a bad movie? I don't know. Like, is it the worst movie we've talked about? Almost certainly not. But I, it, it's a movie that has kind of, like, through the two iterations of the AFI list, it's dropped a couple spots. I really wonder if they do this again in the next year or two, and there are some reports that they might. I really wonder if this is a movie that'll last. I wonder if even with the qualifications it has, um, with its with its Oscar success, with its, you know, presence, with how popular it was, all that stuff, I, I do wonder, is this a movie that in 15 years, will people still care about this as much, or will it kind of just you know, float along the sands of time a little bit. Um, and it is worth mentioning, this is the first war movie they've put on the list. Um, and I'm glad that we have the idea of spectacling here early, because boy howdy, we are going to come back to it for some for some other war movies as they come up. Um, anything else before I start talking about what I'm supposed to be talking about with this movie? <laughs> no. <clears throat> Not really. I guess I'll just echo all of that and say that, like, for me, a key moment is one that you mentioned where it is that standoff before Elias hits Barnes, where it's. I need that to be a moment. It, it, it is a good look at. How do I want to say this? It's a good look at complicity um, in terms of. Right, soldiers to a sergeant, but I need that to be a larger look at the system that profits and generates war itself and not as a simple well the good guy punched the bad guy so we're okay now or in the Um, end when when chris does when chris does shoot barnes like i'm sorry that's 1968 the war kept on going like it didn't fix something that that's like that's like a little rambo moment that proves that chris isn't like a sissy like he's a good He's a good soldier at that point, and he knows how to kill people. That's not, that's not like, fixing something. Well, the end, too, where Francis, another black character, shoots himself so they're twice wounded and they can go home. Like, Taylor's crying as they do this. I'm like, right, there's a way in which that's supposed to make Francis seem weak, I think, but it's like, I totally understand that. <laughs> it's like, that, to me, is the much more sympathetic thing. Um and then, like, the ending narration of, like, the war is over for him, but, like, it will remain for the rest of your life. Yeah, it will. It's also going to remain, like, raging for several more years. It's not over, like Tim just said. So, I like, I think what you said about when Stone gets it right, it's emphatically so, but there are too many moments where he's emphatically wrong. <laughs> Yeah, uh, the viewers did not see me, or the viewers, they're not viewers, so they didn't see me doing a thing, but maybe you can guess the hand motion I was making. Um, the movie's most influential scene, the one that I sort of skipped over, uh, is the, the source of our, of our topic for, for this episode. It's about classical needle drops. So this is the first week of two in a row where I'm going to have to step onto Matt's turf not really, but we'll see. I mean, we'll see how it goes. This I, is I well to establish my own turf already. I mentioned Francis, who is played by Corey Glover, who is one of the members of Living Color, the band. So <laughs> there we go. There's already a music connection. That was some Kevin Bacon stuff right there. So like this, this um, this topic, 
the idea of using classical music in a score slash soundtrack that doesn't rely on it otherwise, uh, something that really does have a score that comes from someone else, someone else writes it, but they they pull from classical music, and I'm using the term classical basically just to mean elevated symphonic music, so like, you know, something that people could listen to in their symphony halls and done by symphony orchestras, that's really what this means here. Um, a couple, a couple years, 10 years ago, um, 10 years ago, the artist won Best Picture, which is in a lifetime of baffling Best Picture decisions, gotta be the most baffling of my lifetime. But it won because the dog. It won because of Uggy the dog, who was very cute and who did lots of fun things. And it's hard, like, the artist is bad, and if you like it, you should feel bad or maybe just watch an actual silent movie. But, like, the dog is nice. I like the dog. I rooted for the dog. I rooted for the dog more than I rooted for the people. I say this and I'm like, actually, that's how I am with every movie, but whatever. Like, the dog is great. Uggy was wonderful. That's how I feel about this movie and Adagio for Strings, the Samuel Barber piece that is playing when Elias gets killed. And here's another reason why I'm glad that I went back to this is because I didn't remember how often they used it. Uh, in between the last time that I watched it and this time I've actually like started listening to more, more Barber, um... In fact, at one point earlier this summer, I decided I was in a mood and I was going to listen to Adagio for Strings while running, and not exactly pump-up music, but, like, it kind of worked. <laughs> it's, like, it's like this really emotional piece um, for people of a certain generation. It's it's the, the funeral music for FDR, so it's, I mean, if you're not familiar with it, it's, it's an absolutely gorgeous, elegiac piece. Um which is instantly recognizable once you do know it. And they use it no fewer than five times in this movie. The movie starts with it, the movie ends with it, and the movie uses it again and again throughout the, the uh, length of it. So when, when Chris shows up as a new recruit in Vietnam, it's playing over uh, his entrance to the movie it's also playing over the exit that these body bags are going to be taking, so it's the same plane. Good image, good thought, well done. Also literally true. But, like, that's that uh, theme, that musical theme is there from the start, and it's, it's effective there. Um, it's there again when they burn down the village, so that village scene that, I've, that we've re referenced a few times now, uh, that ends with them burning down slash destroying the village. They put that over that. Uh, they put it over a, a little narrative monologue where Chris says, I don't know what's right or wrong or what's right anymore, that there is a civil war in the platoon. I can't believe we're fighting each other when we should be fighting them. Um, it's playing over that as well. So it's like it's being used to underline these sad moments or these like mentally... Uh, these moments of mental strife, I think that's like when you see it the most often. But it is also playing over, again, the movie's most famous scene, the one that you're going to see in every Oscar montage until the end of time. Um, so Willem Dafoe playing Elias, he is supposed to be writing a report that will get Barnes court-martialed for what he did in that village. And so Barnes decides that he is going to make sure that Elias cannot court-martial him. So in the middle of a fight, 
Uh, he peels off. Elias is alone. He says he'll move faster doing what he's doing. Um, and Barnes finds Elias in the forest, shoots him a few times, and leaves. Uh, tells the rest of the platoon, or not the rest of them, not literally the rest of them, but a couple guys, including Chris, that that uh, he saw Elias die, he saw Elias get shot, that he's, you know, he's out of commission. And then, of course, once all the members of the platoon are up on their helicopter, looking down at the moment, you hear it again, and Chris says, it's Elias, and there he is, sort of stumbling through the forest, um, while the Vietnamese, always faceless, are chasing after him in this, like, fanned-out pattern. Um, and the music just sort of swells. It gets louder and louder as it gets down to Elias, uh, who is so eventually at the end, who's been shot by the Vietnamese, has been shot by Barnes. Um, he is, like, crawling on the ground, and eventually he gets on his knees and, like, gestures up in this enormous, futile gesture, this great Christ-like moment, as the music gets louder and louder, the strains are, I mean, at one point in this in this piece, the strains are so dissonant, and we are, like, just about there when he's doing it. Um, and then the camera shifts, there's a cut, and we see him fall, like, in front of us as we see the helicopter fly over, uh, and it's all very Christ-like, and the year before he played Christ himself, which is kind of funny, um... And it's like the big turning point of the movie. For me, that is the that is the scene that, you know, you have to talk about when you talk about Platoon. And it's the piece of music uh, you have to return to over and over again when you talk about Platoon. Because that use of it is so iconic. Like, it's kind of hard to imagine another movie pulling Adagio for strings at this point. Just because Oliver Stone pulled it so many times. And to, again, to genuine effect. Uh, here in this movie. So, that's our theme. That's that's where we are headed this week. Uh, the two movies that I've got for us are close uh, in terms of... in close... Uh, in terms of the time that they share with Platoon. Like, it's all within a six-year period. Um, I don't think they were actually all making movies in mind <laughs> with, like, these classical needle drops back then. Uh, but it kind of worked out that way. Uh, the first one is 1983's The Right Stuff, uh, directed by Philip Kaufman. And the other one is Michael Cimino's Heaven's Gate from 1980. Um, I kind of want to start with Heaven's Gate because I'm already in screed mode. And I feel like this one is definitely more screedy than than The Right Stuff. Um, I'm going to give my my throat a break for a second because I've been talking very quickly. Matt, what is your familiarity with, with these two pictures? Uh, with Heaven's Gate, when you say it to me, the first thing I think about is the cult. So I will say not great with the movie. Mm -hmm. um, I understand very Hard to Google. Vague, like general things about it, but I've never seen it. So I don't have too much familiarity with that one. And the right stuff I know more about, but honestly, I hadn't thought about that movie until you mentioned it what, yesterday or a couple days ago, whatever it was. Um, so, yes, sort of in that lineage of like, these are films I know and understand to be like popular and important to some degree, or at least were at the time. Um, or at least that they, like, they have some name that they reached me, um, but I don't know them 
very well. Um, I'd say I know the right stuff more. Um, I'm, just, I'm more familiar with the story and kind of what's happening there and the, the Tom Wolf of it all. But um, but yeah, Heaven's Gate is is one I've heard of but have have never seen, and I, I barely have any familiarity with it beyond like I know it's a western. Yeah, so Heaven's Gate, the the thing, the the thing, the the word, however you want to talk about it, for most of our lifetimes, again, has been that Heaven's Gate is basically the movie that killed the new Hollywood. Um, and to some extent, there's a little bit of truth to that because it was an enormous bomb and it was an incredibly expensive movie to make. Uh, it was made by the aforementioned Michael Cimino, um, someone who made the deer hunter and was definitely i mean not like one of the like the royalties of the new hollywood but someone who was well respected and had that strano tour vibe to him uh and then he goes and makes this movie and there are so many there's so many stories about the production and they cut the movie down incredibly so like yes to some extent the movie as it was shown in 1980 may not necessarily have been all that good, and it was expensive, and no one liked it. So yes, all of those things can be true, but we can leave the I, slander out about the new Hollywood thing. Go ahead. Sorry, just real quick. I feel I should specify when I said I understand both of them to be important. I meant this one as like an important disaster in its mm -hmm. own way, but um, I, I think that does lend a certain popularity to it to like it's something I heard I've heard of even if I've never bothered to like deal with it um though now I'm seeing that it has both walking and bridges in it so I'm uh -huh. and Christofferson so I'm much more interested uh -huh. now yeah so this movie this movie first of all is one of several which comes out in a two-year period or so where pretty much everyone making new Hollywood style movies has a flop has like some level of like, oh, this is our big project, we sunk a lot of money into it, and we are like waiting for it to implode. And it kind of starts with Apocalypse Now, which of course is a great movie, but I mean, you don't have to have even seen Hearts of Darkness to know that that movie was imperiled by what Coppola was doing and, and just like the absolute lunacy of that set. Like you don't, again, you don't have to have seen the documentary or read a book to know the stories about that. Apocalypse Now goes on to be successful, if incredibly costly. But here is a list of some movies that came out within a year or two of this one, some before, some after, which either got bad reviews or didn't make back their money or did both. So you've got Coppola's One from the Heart, Spielberg's 1941, Scorsese's New York, New York, Friedkin's Sorcerer, Ashby's Second and Hearts, Altman's Popeye, literally everything that Peter Bogdanovich did after Paper Moon. None of those were successful. People did not want to go see them. They heard bad things. They cost tons of money. And, like, this one just happened to be the one that, like, famously bankrupted United Artists or got them right on the, on the, the ledge. So there's also, in this time period, you have people who are starting to make it more businesslike. A lot of the people from the executive suites, who we talk about less often than we should probably, uh, when we talk about new Hollywood people, like a lot of the, a lot of the people doing the business aspect are looking at it more as a business and less as an art, and there are new people in, a lot of new studio moguls, uh, and they are, 
waiting for someone to fail, essentially, the way that Chimino fails. Um, some of these guys were also beyond their capacity to cope, like Bogdanovich, depending on how seriously you take the whole Sybil Shepard, Yoko Onoed him from himself business. I mean, you could say that. Uh, Martin Scorsese, this is when he's like this close to killing himself with cocaine. Um, same thing with Francis Ford Coppola. Like you could, you could definitely, you could definitely make the case that a lot of these guys were in too deep. So like, no, this is a movie that is a convenient flashpoint. It is not really the movie that does it. Um, here's, here's the other thing about it. I've, I've already referenced that the studio cut it down. The studio murdered it. I don't know what it actually looks like in that form because I'm not a masochist and I don't believe in wasting that much time on something that's not good, but, like, it took until the 2010s to start getting a cut of this thing, which was much more like what Shimino had in mind, and five years ago or so, Criterion put out a director's cut over, like, that Shimino, you know, basically had in mind. That thing is like 215 minutes or something. And that thing is a masterpiece. That's an absolute god-tier movie. Maybe the best Western made after that generation of people like Ford and Hawks and Delmer Daves and Anthony Mann had died. Like, it's it might be the best one since then. And this is a movie with an incredible cast, starring, again, Chris Christopherson, it does have Jeff Bridges, it does have John Hurt, it does have Isabelle Huppert, who... The first time I saw this movie, I, like, got to a point, I'm like, is she gonna have time to show up in more scenes with a shirt than without a shirt? And I think the answer in the end is yes, but it's close. It's very close. It's like a, it's like a wire finish. Um, it's a movie that's got Christopher Walken in it. Uh, it's a movie that's got Sam Waterston as the bad guy. He's great in this. Like, Sam Waterston almost doesn't have enough to do. Incredible cast. It's got Vilmos Shigman's um, cinematography. It is some of his best work, which means it is some of the best cinematography ever. Like, it's it's a Western that speaks to that big sky aspect. I kind of, you know, like, I kind of wish that if we could go back and rename them, I would love to call them Big Skies instead of Westerns, because I feel like that's a more accurate way to put the concept, and this movie gets that. It is set in Wyoming. It is absolutely luscious. Like, it's it's this beautiful movie. Um, and it's a movie that has an interesting set of music. Like, this one is more soundtrack than score. It's pulling... It's got some stuff that's, like, older and more traditional. It's got some stuff that David Mansfield of the ex-Bob Dylan group uh, actually wrote himself. Um, so there's, there's another fun, like, little music connection for us. Um, it's got, as well, a scene in which the Blue Danube is playing. So this is the, the famous Johann Strauss waltz from 1866 that I think all of us know by heart, pretty much. Um, it's also a, a classical needle drop that we have seen in many, many movies. It is one that, uh, is kind of a big deal in Goodbye Mr. Chips, for example, uh, though, if there is any movie that's famous for doing it, it's got to be 2001 A Space Odyssey, um, which obviously has the best use of it. But what I love about the use of the Blue Danube in this movie is its placement. It's very early in the film. So the movie starts in 1870. 
when Avril and Irvine, uh, the Christofferson and, and Hurt characters, respectively, are graduating from Harvard. And the two of them are both very wealthy. They're both like these brilliant, outlandish, funny, thrill-seeking young men. Uh, John Hurt's wig is not making him look any younger, but whatever. Uh, the two of them get their graduation speech from, from Joe Cotton, and they go out onto the lawn. There's this enormous tree. It's like the biggest tree in the whole world. And all of these young men who are just gradu graduated from Harvard, who are just young enough to have missed the Civil War, whose lives are unscathed, who could probably believe that their lives will continue to be unscathed. These young men go out onto the lawn, and the Blue Danube starts up, and they find their lady friends, and they begin waltzing. And this almost doesn't feel classical needle-droppy enough, because this is only like a four-year difference between when the song would have come out, so to speak, and like when these guys are doing it. But what I really love about it is that it sets off the motif of the movie. And this movie uses circle motifs over and over again, which is the definition of motif. So like over and over again, we have this idea of the circle, of going around in the circle, uh, whether that's sort of a, like a metaphysical, like what is my life, why am I going in the same circle I've been going in, or more literally, people just going around and around. So this first time, we see it in this very courtly, continental way, because Averill is from a rich family, he himself is wealthy, he is personally well-off, um, and we can see himself, like, enjoying himself in this sector. And 20-odd years later, when the movie is actually taking place, like when the, the heart of it is actually occurring, he's, a, he's kind of a class traitor. He is a, a marshal out in Wyoming, and where Irvine is also out in Wyoming, but as like a cattleman, as a rancher, who is making oodles of money off of this off of this land and off of his, you know, personal thousands of heads of cattle or whatever, Christofferson's character is someone who is, you know, not pulling much of a salary as a marshal, um, and someone who is actively siding against these people who is siding against the, the terroristic rule of law that's being pushed up by people like Waterston and Hurd's characters. So he is first seen in the circle as part of like this inner circle of rich people. And then when we come back to him, the next time we see him in a dancing circle like this is at the roller rink. And if there is one thing people know about this movie, it is the roller rink. Because people are like, they built one and then made everyone skate on vintage skates? And the answer is yes, because it's one of the best scenes ever. It's terrific. Uh, in terms of contrast to that original Blue Danube waltz, instead of, you know, Johann Strauss, they have this Zydeco thing going on. They're playing this, like, lethally catchy Zydeco number, which I'm just thinking about, and I know I will not be able to remove from my brain for the next month, so... Thanks, thanks me. Um, there is this number playing. Everyone is, all of these settlers, these poor people, these immigrants, are at this roller rink that they've put together, which is called Heaven's Gate. That's that's the, the joke. And they're all skating around and, like, dancing to the music. And there is this moment of communal togetherness, which is so beautiful and so um, so tactile, almost. 
And it's something that you can see Jeff Bridges' character really enjoying himself with. And eventually, Hooper and Christopherson go around and sort of, like, skate around a little bit. Um, it's, it's something which is so different from that original needle drop that, like, it has to call your attention to it. There is some other circular stuff that's going on here. There are some other things... Like, for example, the final battle between the ranchers and the settlers, which is set up in that same kind of like, well, I guess we better circle the wagons kind of thing that John Wayne movies always do, where, like, the settlers are in the middle and they're, like, shooting the Indians who are literally, like, you know, going around them. It's the same thing here. It's the exact same thought here. But I think the contrast between the Zydeco roller rink scene, which I can't wait to say over and over again, and the Harvard graduation with the Blue Danube Waltz, I feel like that's just deeply effective. And I feel like the the stateliness and the stereotype of that, like, you know, very European, very highfalutin waltz is a particularly impressive counterpoint to the much more low-down and, and homey kind of feel that you get later on in the movie when they're doing essentially the same thing. So those are those are my Heaven's Gate screeds as well as my, my thoughts about the Blue Danube in there. Um, anything to, to say about about this particular movie and, and where it stands so far with the theme? I just want to read some random things about it if I can. Yes, do please. <laughs> so it made $3.5 against a 40 40 Forty-four million dollar budget. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also want to point out that Willem Dafoe is in this as well, though uncredited. And so he's in several movies this episode. Good for him. Uh, <laughs> what's that? Good for him, my man. <laughs> and the last thing I'm endlessly amused by is that Jeff Bridges is playing a character called John Bridges. It's very confusing. <laughs> It's, ve- it's very confusing, and it actually doesn't even look like him all that much. Like, the first time the first time I saw this movie, I was like, is that is that Jeff Bridges? Like, I didn't, like, know where to look for him, and he, like, I don't know. He looks more like Jeff Daniels than Jeff Bridges, which is its own level of confusing. Um, but he is, he's very good in this, um, in that roller ring scene, he, like, falls on his butt real hard while he's like pretending to play a violin it's it's all very endearing there's a lot about this movie that's just a lot of fun brad dorif is in this brad dorif is great in this movie i didn't even mention him the first time out um if this is a movie that you and by you i mean like you the great crowd of people listening to this uh but if this is a movie you have not seen do not go on amazon and do not go on Prime to watch it, because what they have is the like the two-and-a-half-hour version, which I would not waste my time on. Uh, find your local library or buy up that four-hour Criterion one, because that's, that's the one. Three-and-a-half-hour, whatever. Buy that one, watch that one, rent that one. That's the one you want. All right, the other movie. Another epic, another one over three hours. Uh, the Right Stuff which is an elite dad-level movie. This is really one of the great dad movies ever made. Um, So I don't know what that says about me that I love it this much. Um, The Right Stuff is, again, by Philip Kaufman. It is a movie which, genuinely, I I really think I could watch it once a month 
and not ever get tired of it. Uh, there is so much about it that's exciting and really, really funny and incredibly well made. And it has, for my money, one of the, I don't know, one of the best scores ever. Like, we're talking like maybe single digits best scores ever. Uh, it's by Bill Conti, who most people remember from Rocky and from doing all the, the Rocky stuff. Um, but this this beats the Rocky score right out of the park. Um, in that early 80s, like, we're still very orchestral, but we also love that synthy that synthy mess. Um, this is definitely a, a soundtrack that pulls on its on its synth uh, its synth levels pretty strong. Um, it is in the wake of Chariots of Fire, of course, which really popularized that. I'm gonna be quick about this movie because <laughs> I really could talk about it all day. Uh, but if this is a movie that's new to you, it's got two plots. Uh, the first plot is about Chuck Yeager. Uh, Chuck Yeager is the guy who broke the sound barrier. He is an American, and I say is because I'm pretty sure he's still kicking. Um, he is an American test pilot who is essentially uh, the greatest of them all. He is the toughest. He is the coolest. He is the sexiest. He is the riskiest. Everything about him is just like this sort of... I don't know. Again, a, a, a true Western legend. Here he is out in the California desert, uh, risking his life every time he gets into a plane, doing it for the thrill of it. It's not for money, but it's to say that he did. Uh, there is like a very strong legendary aura that sort of basks around him. Uh, he is played by Sam Shepard, who is one of my favorite movie actors playwriters, whatever you've got. Uh, Shepard is like the perfect person to play him. He looks nothing like him, um, but he is the perfect person to play him because he projects this sort of aw shucks coolness about him, this just absolute effortlessness. It is a truly great performance. Um, the movie begins with him. It's about him, you know, the way that he breaks the sound barrier after he breaks a couple ribs after falling off a horse. Uh, and the, from there, the movie kind of flits back to him occasionally. It transitions pretty well uh, from him to a new generation of test pilots who will become the Mercury 7. Um, so it's people uh, like Gus Grissom, it's people like John Glenn, it's people like Alan Shepard, it's people like Gordo Cooper, who is not one of America's most famous astronauts, but he is played by Dennis Quaid here in a sort of an early Dennis Quaid pure charisma role. Um, there are a lot of people in this. Ed Harris is playing John Glenn. Fred Ward is is Grissom, um, and and it is a, a wonderful cast. But I'm getting away from myself already. Calm down, gush less focus. Uh, the movie is so, so, so. yes. Focus on the right stuff. Well, anyway, um, the movie after it sort of begins with this image of the purest version of what the test pilot is of someone who does have this, this right stuff. Uh, it talks about these other men who are all test pilots and who all have the right stuff themselves, who are all like great pilots and cool and tough and sexy and whatever. Um, but there's something very branded about them that they have the force of the United States propaganda machine behind them, uh, that they don't actually have to do very much piloting that the job they do is essentially as someone jokes, being spam in a can, that they are going up in a capsule and coming back down, and they really don't have a lot to do for themselves while they're up there besides enjoy the ride. Um, 
which is not an unfair way to put it. Like, these people are kind of overqualified for the job they have to do. Um, but it is about, in many ways, the sort of contrast between real greatness and projected greatness. And again, not that, like, Alan Shepard isn't an American hero who did all sorts of great things, but, like, it is about the the active greatness and the active ability to push the outside of the envelope that Jaeger has. And it is about the way that these other people get a lot more shine and a lot more fame and a lot more perks for doing something that is less than that. And also about the knowledge that you are not what Jaeger is. Like there are scenes where, where Grissom and Cooper, like when they are test pilots at, at Edwards themselves, uh, they look at, at Jaeger and they're like, that guy is always on top. He's the best. If somebody beats his record, he just goes up and beats theirs. Like there's that definite knowledge that he is the one but that he, you know, being a, a basically uneducated, no college degree guy, um, too independent even for for the people at NASA, he'll never be the one who who gets this kind of praise. It's a movie which really does everything. Like it, it really does get into so many things about myth and about history. It's a great period piece uh, about gender roles. It is a movie which is the funniest thing like that I think I've ever seen in my life. There is like an extended section of this movie where Harry Shearer and Jeff Goldblum just like do buddy comedy together. And it's like the funniest thing that I've ever watched. I like can't breathe every time they are perfect together. Um, but that's, that's the right stuff. This is one, this is one you've seen a long time ago. You said, yeah, I, like, I had forgotten about the, <laughs> the Jeff Goldblum bit, but I, I'm remembering that now, and <clears throat> I need to go watch that again after this episode. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's definitely worth worth your time. I had to stop myself from watching it again because I watched it a few months ago. Like I didn't need to watch it again, but I'm like maybe I could. Anyway, um, the part of the movie that I am most interested in for this uh, needle drop business is uh, is kind of unusual. It comes at a weird part in the movie because at this point, we've seen Alan Shepard go up. We've seen John Glenn go up. Um, a lot of the the really important, like, historic moments have passed. And we're kind of down to those things that you'd only find if you, like, read the book this is based on or if you, like, read newspapers or something. But we are at the point where the Mercury 7 are among the most famous people in America. Most of them have gone into space, not just the famous ones, but even the ones the average person couldn't name. Um, these people are now coming to Houston because Lyndon Baines Johnson, of course, is in charge of the space program. The guy they have playing him is hilarious. I mean, LBJ's comic relief is A-plus in my book. Um, but he, like, he has, of course, brought this thing to Houston. There's a giant barbecue to, uh, to celebrate these people as they come. All this stuff. There is also a performance um, which takes place uh, where an old, an old timey, true like true to life person, uh, famous like fan dancer, comes on, and she is performing this this dance to Claire de Lune, and it's a scene which is odd, frankly. Like the first time I saw this, I was a kid, and I was like, huh. What are we doing? I like this movie's like 
two and a half hours in and we're doing this. And it's it's sort of it's sort of a shock the first time, maybe even the second time. But what's so interesting about this, and as Claire de Lune is going, which of course is this incredibly like personal song, and I say this even though lots of people know it and like it, and it doesn't like have words or anything, how could it be personal? But I would like encourage you to listen to it again, because I do feel like there's something about it that just kind of like reaches out to you a little bit. Like it's a, it's a classical piece when it goes back into the piano after it's sort of been futzing around for a second and it gets into the melody that's very arresting. And, and I do feel like it kind of gets you on that personal level. Um, the song is playing over it and all of these astronauts are looking at one another as they do it. And there's this sort of like, understanding as they all look at each other and see one another that they they've been through so much they've sort of like bonded together and yet at the same time you can't help but hear what Gordo said right before the performance he's giving this interview because he's supposed to be the next one to go up he's the only one who hasn't so far and someone asks him who's the best pilot you ever saw which is like his bit like over and over in the movie like he does like a like, who's the best pilot you ever saw? And, and the right answer is always him, obviously, because that's how these guys are. And he gets this question, which for him before would have been like an absolute slam dunk, like it's me. But instead, he finds himself trailing back a little bit. And he's giving this answer that the press doesn't really want. It's this, like, meandering thoughtful, wistful, but very non-specific little speech. But he's like, there's someone I can think of who's, you know, not famous, but who had, you know, not the right stuff. You don't say the right stuff, but that's what he's talking about. And it's very clear he means Jaeger. And he's sitting there thinking about Jaeger, and the guys in the press are losing interest. And eventually he says, who's the best pilot I ever saw? Well, you're looking at him. And that's like, what's in your head is you're like watching this fan dance go on. You're thinking about how there is something beyond uh, what's going on in this barbecue. There's something very personal and arresting about these journeys that these men have made and who they've known. And someone who is still going up there because Jaeger is having, you know, his own little triumph that I will not ruin if you haven't seen the movie. Um but there's other stuff that's, that's like happening with him still. It's not like he's dead. It's not like he's retired. Um, but there's this understanding as that song plays, I think, that's like almost hard to like connect. Like, I can't tell you why I think this. I just, it's just what comes to mind for me. But as that, as that piece is going and as these men look at each other and it's the sort of sadness and, and interiority of that music plays over this sort of old-fashioned person wearing wings, essentially. You're thinking about the generations that have come before and thinking about the Jaegers who, who have flown and the ones who are still flying and still doing things that these men wish they could be doing. Not that they can admit that to anyone, because it'd be crazy not to want to be an astronaut. Um, but there's something about Jaeger in that moment that his, his spirit is sort of like hanging over these men as they're watching this performance to this particular piece of music. Did that make any sense? Yes, it did. I've actually been listening to Claire DeLune in the background while you talk, though, and I found this really <clears throat> interesting video of it where it uh, lights up 
basically the proper finger progressions. Oh, like, yeah, just I seeing like that, it's kind of trippy and fun. <laughs> um, no, that makes perfect sense. And just listening to it again, this was one uh, I definitely needed in my head again before I make this decision. Mm-hmm. Um, but I see what you're saying, like especially with some of the like there, there are livelier bits in it and more active moments and then kind of extended chord progressions really, but there is a certain, I don't know, excitement mixed with, um, it's a je ne sais quoi. Like that really does sum up the piece a little bit. I think there is something about it that is not, that is not easily defined. Right. Like uh, there's those. I don't know, there are longer, more drawn-out, kind of reflective, potentially somber moments to it, and then it sort of um, gets into its livelier bits, but even those are kind of chased with, um, it's not by any means a minor tuning, but there's just kind of something in the the sound of it. um, Yeah, there's a certain, I mean, je ne sais quoi, as Tim just said, but like, a certain somberness and excitement to it all at once. Yeah, it's it's a piece there like I don't know, you think about it and there's there's nothing that's less like the roar of a jet engine than than a piano, but there's something about it that just feels so precise and so right for that moment. Um and it does like not to like do the whole like it's against the score thing, but in the same way that Heaven's Gate plays up one scene with that classical needle drop against one that doesn't have that. This is a score which, like I said, is so heavily invested in its sort of like synthier aspects, which are also like tied up with that Sousa sound. Like there's a lot of like John Philip Sousa sounding stuff because, you know, America, trumpets, planes, rockets, um, all of that is like tied up together. And this is so, so unlike that, that it, emphasizes the difference and and it really does i don't know even the even the lighting is different in that scene there's a lot more backlighting um a lot more like blue cooler lighting that's not like what you see in so much of the rest of it it really does stand out it really is its own thing in the in the stretch of that three hour movie i mean i think claire de lune is a piece of like about and forth thinking like it's easier for me to imagine that accompanying a part of a movie where someone's just sitting down at the desk and maybe writing or just trying to solve something and like tracking their like how they're emoting and and basically like just tracking like you can you can feel and see what's happening in their head without words and like the Claire de Lune is for a piece like that to me which is against rockets and America and like high literal high flying action like I think it's a smart choice and a, and a not a come down so much as an important uh, recontextualizing. Yeah, it's a transition. Really? It's definitely a, like recontextualizing the men. It's transitioning us from from one perspective of them to to a new one. So spiel or or we're I think we should do a spiel anyway. But how detailed would you like this one to be? Um. I think I know what I'm going with, but it, it could still be shifted. So, yeah, let's definitely do the spiel. Um, I don't know. Follow your heart here, I guess. <laughs> All right, following the heart. So, the original piece in mind is Adagio for Strains by Samuel Barber, which sort of 
punctuates all of the major moments of Platoon, so I've picked some some pieces which kind of do the opposite, which get their strength from just being there once. Um, so in Heaven's Gate, using the Blue Danube Waltz is a necessary counterpoint to so much of what will happen in the rest of the movie, which does impute this sort of sense of, of class and of dignity and distance, which is in that circular aspect of the, mu- of the music itself, but also of the movie, because something which I actually realized I should have said earlier but didn't, um, we see Averill return to it in the end. He comes back to New England. Uh, he comes back to his wealthy life. The last scene of the movie is him on his private yacht with a woman he was dancing with. Um, to the Blue Danube Waltz, so there's that circle there as well. It's something which I think kickstarts the the overall visual motifs as well as the thematic motifs of the movie, and so it gains strength there. Um, and then in the right stuff, using Claire de Lune at the end as so much of a musical um, place to sort of thrust against, uh, because it is so unlike all of the other music in the in the movie, which is again wonderful. Uh, but which also forces a really strong reflective moment. Um, reflective moment for the characters in the movie, a reflective moment for us, and like you were saying, kind of a uh, recontextualization of who these people are and where they're, where they're from, what they're doing now. Um, that this is a, a key moment to sort of settle things with them. It settles debts with them in this very personal, cool way before we watch Jaeger go on one final crusade into the sky, um, which is backed up with totally different music from that. So those are our, those are our two movies. Those are our two options. Those are our two, um, our two great pieces of music that sort of underpin those classical needle drops. What do you think? So I like both. Um, I really like both examples and, I don't know. I maybe say this every episode or most of them, but I do feel like this one could go either way. Like I think there's a convincing case for both. And I think that for me anyway, that's primarily because of how both instances cut against the movie in some way, mm-hmm. um, or cut against their respective movies. Um, and whether that's recontextualizing the entire thing and framing it differently, uh, like the right stuff or setting motif and kind of like i don't know it it seems like a bit of cognitive whiplash in a way of seeing a waltz like the 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 ultimate marker of the ballroom um in a big sky movie as you were saying like just that the tension between those things and um you know seeing that in the middle again in both cases i think they cut against the thematics of the movie in certain ways and and enhance it not just undermine it but enhance it in different ways so i like both instances here i'm going to go with by a nose heaven's gate um because thinking of it in terms of needle drop the hearing the blue danube waltz in the middle of a movie like that to me feels more droppy in a way even though i could i could also make a case that like the literal drop of the right stuff where it's not the big actiony up in the sky music but a more reflective a more somber piece 
as we kind of come down from all of that, literally and figuratively. So I think I can make that case for both. But I don't know. There's something about the way that the uh, that the Blue Danube fits in my conception of Heaven's Gate as a movie that to me feels more focused on like the introduction of that song in particular, I guess, in a way that Claire de Lune, I think, is important, vitally important to that moment in the right stuff. Um, but I guess my focus shifts a bit elsewhere than on the song itself as a piece being introduced, than kind of how it's influencing the collective whole. Whereas the Blue Danube, it feels, to me anyway, like when I hear that in the movie, that's going to stick out as like, oh, okay, that's the drop moment. Now what is this music trying to make me do? Um, or what's it trying to make me see? So I'm going to go with Heaven's Gate for that reason, if that reason makes any sense. No, I think I think either way you, you look at it, you kind of have to see it as like, which one do you like the effect on the movie more with? Like, I really think that's what it comes down to for this kind of decision. Um and yes, that one definitely makes sense to me. Um, yeah, these are just, I don't know, these are definitely like two movies which, I don't know that they have like a whole lot in common with one another, like they feel like different movies, even though I feel like both of them are like weird westerns in a kind of way, like they're both, I have like written before about how the right stuff is a western, which, I don't know, everything's a western with me, but like, these two movies do kind of feel different, but they use those needle drops, again, for no more than about two or three minutes at a time in incredibly long movies um, to, like, really cement a point. Um, something that you might you might be tickled by for this is that if we had the original Heaven's Gate and not the director's cut, we wouldn't have this choice in front of us. You would not have been able to choose it. Um, this was an expensive scene because they were all expensive scenes, but, like, this is one that definitely got got cut from the original release, and which I don't know made it into another one until like 2012 or 2015 or something. So we are, as far as I'm concerned, we're just fortunate to have it here to like give us that idea at all. As always, screw the studios. <laughs> burn Hollywood, burn. All right, so to sum up here today, the original movie from the AFI list is the 1986 Best Picture winner, Platoon, directed by Oliver Stone. And the two options in front of Matt for the idea of classical needle drops were Heaven's Gate, Michael Cimino's uh, 1980 Western Big Sky epic, and 1983's The Right Stuff, directed by Philip Kaufman, uh, which is about those Cold War days of, of flight into the wild blue and ultimately wild black yonder. Um, Two wonderful movies, two that are very dear to my heart, and in the end, Matt has chosen Heaven's Gate. If you are looking for, for example, the first half of this, if you wanted to hear about Fear of a Black Planet, which we have mentioned a couple of times, uh, go ahead and check out part one of this episode. You can also find at subtitlespodcast.com all of our episodes, of which there are a few at this point. You can also see links to Matt's Spotify, links to my letterbox, links to both of our blogs, and a, you know, rationale for how we do this and why we do this in case this is like your first time out with us. Hope to see you again next time.